Dear Father, we're so thankful that we have a, a study that is rich and deep like the one you provided to us here in Ezekiel. We're thankful, Father, that we get to learn uh, both history and theology, and that we can understand things from how you worked with your people long ago and, and help that, uh, use that to help understand uh, how you're dealing with us now in the church and that it would draw us closer to you and uh, give us a greater sense of uh, purpose and urgency as we seek to follow you. And at the same time, Father, we're, we are reminded that you hold accountable those you have called into covenant. And while we are not Israel and we are not under their law, Father, at the same time we know we have our own obligations and, and you have uh, lavished us with your grace and your mercy and in that way, Father, we have an obligation to respond in love and in a thankful heart. And with that, Father, obedience should be an easy, natural response. And so, Father, we are, uh, we are regretful at times that we are not that obedient servant that we should be. And uh, yet, Father, we're so thankful that our, our sins are covered and that your grace abounds. So, Father, we thank you tonight again that this study would help encourage our hearts in that way to be obedient and to be understanding of how you work with us. And uh, knowing that you are good and that all you do is for good purpose, Father, we trust in all that comes. So help us and guide us tonight in this study. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, welcome back. We're now back to our study of Ezekiel in chapter 17. Uh, We've been studying Israel's excuses that they offered to Ezekiel and to God, saying, We don't need to listen to Ezekiel concerning the coming judgment because of various reasons. And so far we've studied five of the eight excuses that they offered in this particular section of Ezekiel. And every one of these excuses has shown us how self-deceived the people of Israel truly have become. It also gives us an opportunity to consider whether we use similar excuses at times for our own disobedience to the word of God. Because it's really just our human nature, our sin nature, to think that we can get away with sin. But Scripture says that the Lord is aware and that He knows what we do, and and that should encourage us to serve Him obediently. So as we go through this study and as we look at these excuses, we want to understand the historical circumstances of Israel's excuses and of the Lord's response to each of them so that we can get a better uh, sense of how to serve the Lord as well. Tonight we're going to move into excuse number six, And this excuse, like many of the others that we've studied so far, is not explicitly stated in the text. You only get the sense of what the Lord is responding to by looking at his response. So we come to understand the excuse indirectly. And in the previous two chapters, in chapters 15 and 16, when we looked at the uh, previous excuse, the fifth excuse, basically the nation of Israel was telling the Lord that because you have a covenant with us, that prevents you from executing the judgment that Ezekiel is predicting. And what the Lord said in response to that was just to review in detail all the sins of the previous generations of Israel. And because of all their violations of the covenant, that justified his judgment. But what's interesting tonight is that that excuse, that previous excuse and the Lord's response actually generates a new excuse for chapter 17. So the nation of Israel, in response to what they heard, begin to say something new. And the new excuse that they offered was that it wouldn't be fair for the Lord to punish this generation, the generation of Ezekiel's day, for sins of prior generations, that it just wasn't fair to hold them accountable for what came before him. So now in chapter 17, what we're going to study is the Lord's response to that new excuse. And chapter 17 opens up with a parable. So let's turn there, Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions and a full plumage of many colors came to Lebanon and took away the top of the cedar. He plucked off the topmost of its young twigs and brought it to a land of merchants. He set it in a city of traders. He also took some of the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it besides abundant waters. He set it like a willow. Then 
It sprouted and became a low spreading vine with its branches turned toward him, but its roots remained under it. So it became a vine and yielded shoots and sent out branches. But there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and sent out its branches toward him from the beds where it was planted that he might water it. It was planted in good soil beside abundant waters that it might yield branches and bear fruit and become a splendid vine. Say, thus says the Lord, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its sprouting leaves wither? And neither by great strength nor by many peoples can it be raised from its roots again. Behold, though it is planted, will it thrive? Will it not completely wither as soon as the east wind strikes it, wither on the beds where it grew? So as we open up in chapter 17, you have the Lord giving Ezekiel a riddle, he says, and a parable. Now, the prophecy we're looking at here is a riddle because the meaning of it has to be decoded. It's not obvious. You wouldn't necessarily be able to understand it just by guesswork. And it's a parable as well because the story is presenting an allegory within the, the riddle. So after you solve the riddle and you get to understand what all the pieces are, then you still have an allegory to understand as well. And an allegory is a message that is told through symbols. So the riddle is challenging the intelligence of the listeners. It's, it's a way of, of exciting interest in the audience within Israel. They're going to be interested in solving this riddle and this puzzle. So as Ezekiel is giving it to them, he's capturing their interest. And as they take interest in it, then they come to understand the message and then they finally get the point. If he had just spouted off the, the message directly, it's likely they would have just ignored him and seen him as nothing more than an old coot just spouting off. You know, they're probably tired of hearing all that he has to say. So at this point, the riddle is working to help grab the people's interest. And Ezekiel's audience now is dependent on either himself or the Lord through him to explain what the meaning of this parable and riddle are. So in short, it gets their attention and directs them to the message. Then in verses 1 through 10, uh, the Lord presents this riddle slash parable. And then as we get past verse 10 in verses 11 and onward, the Lord himself actually explains what the parable means. So I don't have to work very hard to explain it to you. I'm just going to walk through observing what we find in the first 10 verses. And then as we get into the explanation we will see what the Lord has to teach us. And the story that we're learning about centers on eagles and trees and a vine. And it begins with this singularly impressive eagle who flies to the cedars of Lebanon. Now today, uh, we tend to think of Lebanon as a, a place that is distinct from Israel. It's its own country today. But in Ezekiel's day, Lebanon was another name for the northern region of Canaan. And Lebanon was part of the land God gave to Israel. Canaan is the land that God gave. And therefore, in the Bible, Lebanon is another name for Israel at times. But when the Bible chooses to use Lebanon as a descriptor of Israel, it does so in reference to the northernmost region of Israel, which was famous for having a very tall forest of cedar trees there. Now today, if you go to Israel, you will see cedar trees in various places. But the trees you're seeing today were only planted during the last century or so because the nation of Israel was, was virtually deforested during the Ottoman Empire. So the trees you see in Israel today were planted since Israel became a nation. So, of course, they haven't had much time to grow. They're not very stately, certainly not compared to the ancient cedar groves that Israel had in the past because those had grown up over several centuries. So anytime you see Lebanon referenced in the Bible, it's a way of of calling attention to the fruitfulness and the grandeur of Israel, to its bounty. Uh, th these tall, uh, impressive trees are just examples of, of Israel's great bounty in the north. And so you start with that, and then you have this impressive eagle who comes along and plucks off the tops of all of those cedar trees and carries them away, it says, to a land of merchants and traders. And the eagle also takes some of the seeds from that area of Lebanon and plants them in a fertile, well-watered area. And as a result, that vine then sprouts. Uh, it has roots that are secured in the ground. And as it grows, it spreads out, it says. The, the branches of this vine go across the ground. And at the very ends of the branches, 
they, they reach up, they tip up toward the eagle that planted it. And then in verse 7, we find a new character, uh, another eagle, a somewhat less majestic eagle. The description of this one isn't quite as uh, exuberant as the earlier one. And this eagle comes onto the scene, and now the vine that has been planted suddenly shifts its attention from the first eagle to the second eagle. The roots point toward this second eagle, and the branches now kind of grow in the direction of this new eagle. All of this is to indicate that the vine now is turning its attention away from the first eagle to the second one, seeking uh, sustenance, water, and provision from that second eagle. And then in verse 8, the Lord reminds us that the vine's desire for the second eagle to water it is unnecessary because it's already been planted in a well-watered area. It's been fruitful in that place. So in other words, there's no need for it to go seeking for this new eagle, for this new source of provision. And then in verses 9 and 10, the Lord asks rhetorically, wouldn't the owner of that vine respond by pulling it out of the ground uh, so that it withers because the, the vine did not respond faithfully to the master who planted it, to the first eagle and, and the master who nourished it. But instead it went after another provider. That is to say it despised its first owner. And as a result, won't it suffer the fate of being uprooted? And, and even though it had great roots in the beginning, the fact that it's been pulled out of the ground, detached from the land, so to speak, now it has no hope to survive and it will wither. All right, so that's that's basically the story. We just went through it to understand the details. And now you're going to see the Lord interpreting this riddle and parable. And he does it in a couple of steps. First, uh, Ezekiel uh, will interpret this parable historically, which is to say that we're going to understand what historical events are being portrayed by the parable. And then following that, he is going to provide, the Lord's going to provide a theological application and in that regard, he's going to take the history that has been described and he's going to make sense of it. He's going to explain to Israel the purpose behind it. So let's begin with the historical interpretation. And that begins in verse 11. And it continues, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Say now to the rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Say, Behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem took its king and princes and brought them to him in Babylon. He took one of the royal family and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath. He also took away the mighty of the land, that the kingdom might be in subjection, not exalting itself, but keeping his covenant that it might continue. But he rebelled against him by sending his envoys to Egypt that they might give him horses and many troops. Will he succeed? Will he who has done such things escape? Can he indeed break the covenant and escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the country of the king who put him on the throne, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh, with his mighty army and great company, will not help him in the war when they cast up ramps and built siege walls to cut off many lives. Now he despised the oath by breaking the covenant, and behold, he pledged his allegiance, yet did all these things, he shall not escape. All right, so now the Lord is assigning uh, meaning to the various characters and events in this story. And he begins with the first eagle, which we now see represents the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, when Scripture uses an eagle symbolically, it always represents a leader or a powerful entity working with the authority of God. And you can see examples of this in various places. In, in Exodus 19, the Lord uses an eagle to represent how he himself escorted Israel out of Egypt, uh, born on eagles' wings, it says in Exodus 19. And uh, very interestingly, he also uses the symbol of an eagle elsewhere in the law to describe Babylon itself, just as we see him doing here in Ezekiel. In uh, Deuteronomy 28:47, the Lord gives uh, the nation of Israel a prophecy through Moses telling them that this very attack from Babylon would come in a future day. He just uses the eagle to represent them. He says in Deuteronomy 28, 47, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, 
Therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in the lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old nor show favor to the young. So here you have in the law, uh, you know, written hundreds and hundreds of years before the event, you have the Lord saying to his people Israel at the outset of their covenant that they were going to disobey. When they do, they were going to see this outcome of, of judgment and it would come from another nation. He doesn't name the nation at this point because no one would have understood the name. It didn't exist at that day, but he calls them the eagle. And back to Ezekiel now, we know Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is that eagle. So that eagle... Uh, Babylon cuts off the tops of the trees of Lebanon. And here again, this symbol in Scripture represents the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the Lord says that here in his own interpretation. So Babylon came like a, a hot wind from the east, as he says in verse 10, and carried off the king and the court of Israel. And we know this is historically uh, exactly what happened. In 597 B.C., the army invaded Jerusalem and took the Judea king, Jehoiakim, and all his senior advisors. Now, keep in mind, we've said that the attack on Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar comes in three waves. And where we are now in history, as, as Ezekiel speaks these words, we're sitting between the second and the third attack of the three attacks. And each time that the nation of Israel was attacked, the leadership at that time was removed and the king installed a new leader of his own choosing who would obey him. Uh, and that, that process of cutting off the leadership is represented by the cutting off of these trees. The leaders in each case, whether in the first wave or in the second wave, the leaders were taken by the army back to Babylon. And that's the place of traders and merchants in this parable. Uh, that's a common reference to Babylon. In the Old Testament, in several places, you can see Babylon referred to as a city of traders and merchants. And um, in fact, in the New Testament, there's, a, there's the same description used again. If you know Revelation, you may remember that as Babylon is being destroyed at near the end of the tribulation, uh, it's said to be a city in which the merchants and traders are weeping over the destruction of their city. And so that's another way of referring to Babylon. So in verse th 13, then the Lord says, Babylon, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, took another king from among the family of the Judean kings, a man that he called Zedekiah, and put that man in power over Jerusalem as his vassal. Now, that's what happened in 597 B.C. That was the second invasion. And at the second invasion, he destroyed the, uh, the, the leadership that he had put in place uh, earlier after the first invasion because they rebelled against him. So he came back a second time, uh, conquered the city a second time, tried again, and put another man in place, a man called Zedekiah. That's pictured by the seed being planted by the eagle in fertile soil back in verse 5. So what Nebuchadnezzar expected, of course, was that this new king, Zedekiah, would be compliant with Babylon's wishes because, after all, he owed his power to Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar was, was not initially interested in wiping Israel and, and Jerusalem off the map. He just wanted to conquer them. So after he had conquered them the second time, put a new king in place, and he went away. And now he expected that, that after two incidents like this, that the nation of Israel would get the picture and they would obey and, and stay compliant. And in the course of doing this, uh, he was going to support them. That, that he would protect and support the people while they uh, honored and obeyed him. And in this period of time, the, the, the seed, as the parable reflects it, was well watered and it could flourish, at least in a relative sense, in the sense that in the only alternative would have been death or captivity. So relatively speaking, the city was being allowed to flourish. It had been planted by this eagle. And as Nebuchadnezzar installed Zedekiah, he didn't trust the man. And so he required that Zedekiah enter into a covenant with this new king. So Zedekiah and Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, entered into a covenant. And a covenant is, you know, we often get people comparing it to a 
contract and the way we teach about covenant in the Bible. And that's, that's a somewhat useful comparison, but it really falls short of explaining what a covenant truly is. Because in the Bible, a covenant is a lifelong agreement, a lifelong binding agreement, where, of course, contracts are not necessarily lifelong. And more importantly, in covenants, the penalty for breaking the covenant is always death. There's never any lesser option. So uh, in order for someone to enter into a covenant, they have to be willing to agree to commit to the terms of that agreement for life upon penalty of death should they break the covenant. And just as a side note, this is one of the reasons why I am not a fan of seeing churches or you know, other religious institutions creating, quote, covenants for the people in their uh, churches. You know, people sometimes are asked by churches to sign a covenant as part of membership. That's really an abuse of the word, and it's, it's actually uh, diluting its meaning, and it's not a helpful concept, I think, because clearly nobody is uh, expecting to be part of a church for life, and we certainly aren't saying we're going to kill you if you quit the church. So this is not a, a realistic use of the word. We should be more careful with the terminology. Covenants are serious instruments. And so naturally, someone did not enter into a covenant without considerable forethought because there was a lot on the line. Now, in Zedekiah's case, I doubt he had much of, a, of an option. So what happened in their case was a covenant was struck between Zedekiah and Nebuchadnezzar, which simply said that he would be obedient to Nebuchadnezzar's rule in all things. And in response, Nebuchadnezzar was pledging to provide and to protect Judah as one of his vassals. And as we saw in the parable, under the terms of that covenant, Jerusalem and Zedekiah flourished, at least for a time. They remained in the land. They, they had virtually no restraint on them. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't dictating how they worship. Uh, he wasn't putting onerous terms on them, as far as we know. It was simply a matter of obedience. And in verse 14, the Lord said that this vine, uh, that is Zedekiah's rule, uh, could flourish so long as the nation remained subjected to Babylon. You notice he says that they should not try to exalt themselves. That is, do not try to rebel against the Lord's appointed judgment. This is the way the Lord is speaking to Israel. He's saying, this judgment, this outcome is ordained by me. I have put Babylon over you as a judgment. Do not rebel against them. Do not try to exalt yourself against them. Accept your judgment. And if you do, then you can flourish under these circumstances. So in that sense, Judah's roots, so to speak, the vine, were planted in the ground, and the expectation was that their branches would reach upward to the eagle, acknowledging Babylon's authority. You can almost imagine as these branches come up off the ground that they're raising their hands uh, in praise or in uh, uh, respectful homage to the authority of Babylon. That's what the Lord wanted Israel to do for a time, to respect the Lord's judgment as uh, directed through Babylon's authority. But notice what the vine did instead in the parable. The vine did not grow upward. It spread outward. It was low to the ground. In other words, it was not uh, raising up its attention to the eagle in the proper way. It was almost, uh, in a very obvious way, it was not exalting the eagle only in a, a, a kind of less than sincere acknowledgement, it, the tips, the ends of the branches were bending upward. So it's, uh, it, it's like uh, going through the motions, you know, not really intending to honor Babylon, just doing the minimum. And historically, that is a record of what happened under Zedekiah's rule. He was not a very obedient vassal. His interest was not in subjecting himself to Nebuchadnezzar. He played along for a while. But in 588 B.C., he decided to break his covenant. This is 11 years now uh, after he was put in power. He decided to break his covenant with Nebuchadnezzar, and he wanted to rebel against Babylon. But obviously, Zedekiah knew that his army was not powerful enough. He couldn't withstand another attack from Nebuchadnezzar, so he needed an ally. And Zedekiah, re Zedekiah reached out to uh, Egypt, to Pharaoh Hophra, who was the pharaoh of Egypt at that time. And now Egypt was a, a long-standing enemy of Babylon. And so what Zedekiah hoped was that he could get an ally in Egypt, and as allies, they would fight Babylon together. So as we saw in the text, Zedekiah asked for horses, and he asked for troops, 
to help defeat Nebuchadnezzar's army when he knew that Nebuchadnezzar was inevitably coming back. He would invade again when he found out that Zedekiah was rebelling. And the Pharaoh of Egypt is that second strong eagle that the vine turned to uh, for its supply, for water. Uh, instead of being well watered already, that even though it had everything it needed from Nebuchadnezzar, Zedekiah decided he wanted something different. Now, what's interesting about this prophecy is we know from Ezekiel's dating of his prophecies that he gave this prophecy at around 592 B.C. Now, remember, I said that Zedekiah rebelled in 588 B.C. And of course, since we're talking about B.C., the dates work backwards. So 592 B.C. is about three years before the actual events took place in 588 B.C. So uh, Ezekiel is predicting Zedekiah's rebellion three years before it happened. And we know that uh, Jeremiah was saying similar things to the people of Israel who were in the city. So even Zedekiah himself was being warned in advance that his plan to rebel was not going to work. Uh, in verse 15, the Lord asks, can someone break a covenant and survive? And of course, we know the answer now. Like I told you earlier, our covenant, if it was broken, it required the penalty of death. So the Lord is saying in verse 16 that the king will die in the country that put him in the throne, which is in Babylon, uh, because he broke the covenant. Now, remember, when a man enters into a covenant, part of the process of, of initiating that covenant is to take an oath by the name of your God that you would keep the covenant. So that tells us that Zedekiah would have sworn by the name of the Lord when he struck this covenant with Nebuchadnezzar. And it's because he invoked the name of the Lord that the Lord himself is now going to act to force Zedekiah to obey its terms. In verse 18, he says, Now he, Zedekiah, despised the oath by breaking the covenant. That oath refers to the moment he would have declared, By the name of the Lord, I will be bound to this covenant. So he didn't just despise Nebuchadnezzar. He despised the Lord because the whole point of saying, I promise in the name of the Lord is to say that if I break this covenant, I pledge that my God will take revenge upon me. Well, even though Zedekiah wasn't willing to keep his terms of the agreement, God is a, a basically saying, I'll keep my side of this agreement. That is, I will bring you to death because you pledged your oath in my name and you did not keep this covenant with Nebuchadnezzar. So he's swearing through Ezekiel to hold Zedekiah accountable for breaking the covenant. And remember, he hasn't broken it yet, but the Lord knows he's going to break it and he's telling his, uh, Zedekiah that he's going to force Zedekiah to be faithful. There is a great irony here. Uh, that is, that the people of God, specifically their king Zedekiah, was not willing to keep a covenant that he swore to by the name of the Lord, and yet their enemy, a pagan nation, is going to keep that covenant. They've kept it for the 11 years that, they, uh, that Zedekiah has been in power, and they're going to keep it at the end too, because when the covenant was broken, it became the obligation of the injured party to kill or to take action against the one who broke it. That's the final act of a covenant. When, you, when your covenant is broken, the one who has been offended has the legal right now to take the life of the one who broke the covenant. So in the sense of, of keeping the penalties of the covenant, Nebuchadnezzar is going to do the final act of obedience. Uh, when J. Vernon McGee commented on this moment, he said, the interesting thing is that Nebuchadnezzar kept his side of the covenant. God's people broke the covenant, but the pagan nation kept their side of it. What a picture. McGee goes on, in some churches you will find people still carrying their Bibles, but their hearts are far from God and you cannot believe what they say. On the other hand, there are businessmen who, although they are unsaved, are men of integrity. That's a stark reminder that sometimes our faith and our actions don't align. Certainly that was the case here. In verses 17 through 18, the Lord says that the Pharaoh wasn't going to be able to save Zedekiah, that his plan was a folly, and that the Lord would ensure Babylon would succeed in conquering the king. Uh, now, as a little bit of homework, if you want to read an account of how that final battle transpired, you can read it in Jeremiah 37. 
So Jeremiah records how Zedekiah was uh, taken, how the city was destroyed in that third attack. The city's third conquest is, is pictured by the vine being pulled up by the roots in our parable. So, uh, you know, the roots are the people of, of God secure in their land. And God is saying that Zedekiah and the nation were going to be uprooted from the land and allowed to wither in captivity. Now, remember, the nation was saying in their excuse, they were saying that they shouldn't expect to see judgment uh, and the destruction that Ezekiel was predicting because they weren't responsible. They were saying our forefathers may have done all of those terrible things that the Lord has explained to us, but our generation is not to blame for that. So now in response to that excuse, what the Lord is saying in this chapter is your own leadership is just as rebellious as those prior generations. Because first of all, breaking the covenant with Nebuchadnezzar, that's reason enough for the Lord to put an end to Zedekiah and his rule. But even before he did that, the king was guilty of repeating most of the sins of past generations. And if you turn to 2 Kings 24, we can go there now for a moment. Go to 2 Kings 24. You find in that chapter the record of the three attacks that we've talked about. It's a nice summary, actually. That chapter gives you a nice summary of the three attacks that Babylon brings against Jerusalem. And it also describes the kings that, that Nebuchadnezzar put into power uh, after each of his attacks. And it tells you a little bit about what they were doing. And I'm going to read one section out of that chapter near the end. I want to read about Zedekiah's installment as the third king after the, uh, after the second attack. He's the third king. And it says in 2 Kings 24:17, Then the king of Babylon made his uncle Mataniah king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of the Lord, this came about in Jerusalem and Judah until he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. I'm reading that to you. Because I want you to notice there that during Zedekiah's short reign, it says he repeated all the sins of the prior king, Jehoiakim. So you have Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim. Sounds very similar, but one ends in an M, one ends in an N. So you have first Jehoiakim, and then his son Jehoiakim, and then after that Zedekiah. And it says here that Zedekiah did all of the same sins that the first of these three king, kings did, Jehoiakim. And if you read up the chapter, what you learn is all three of these guys did the same things. Zedekiah did the same sins of the, the king that preceded him. And the king that preceded Zedekiah did all the same sins as the one that he preceded. So the three kings that were put in power by Nebuchadnezzar to rule over Jerusalem, carried on the same abhorrent practices of all the earlier generations. And I can assure you that if the kings were engaged in child sacrifice and prostitution in the temple and idolatry and all the rest, then you can be sure that the population of Israel was doing the same things as well. So the nation had no basis for claiming that it was innocent of its forefathers' sins on the contrary, they were just as guilty and they were just as deserving of judgment. So the Lord's response to their excuse is to call bunk and say, you're lying or you're self-deceived. You have sinned just as much and the evidence is present in the very fact that your kings are so unholy and ungodly. All right, so that was the historical interpretation. Now we know from what the Lord has said, what all those pieces in the parable are talking about and the, the history record reflects how it all came to pass but now the lord moves on to a theological application that is what to make of why these things happened to israel what is the lord doing through them we get that in verses 19 through 21 he says therefore thus says the lord god as i live surely my oath which he despised and my covenant which he broke i will inflict on his head 
I will spread my net over him, and he will be caught in my snare, and then I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there regarding the unfaithful act which he has committed against me. All the choice men in all his troops will fall by the sword, and the survivors will be scattered to every wind, and you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. All right, so the Lord says that the point in all of these things is so that the world would know that I have spoken, and specifically that Israel would recognize that these things came upon them as a judgment, that the Lord has spoken it through Ezekiel and also Jeremiah, and that these things were a result of their sin. Now, had the Lord not spoken and had these things not been made clear, then the world would have just seen Babylon's third defeat of of Israel as just another struggle between world powers. And it would make perfect sense to any student of of ancient East history. They would just see it as a, a, a vassal rebelling against a stronger conquering force. And of course, when you do that, you get crushed. But what the Lord wanted the nation of Israel to understand is there's a bigger story here. They needed to understand that that final defeat of Israel, where they were wiped off the map for a while, that was the Lord saying to Israel, your sin under the covenant has resulted in this outcome. Now, one of the outcomes would be that their king would be taken out of the land again and he would die in Babylon. And we covered the way in which that king, Zedekiah, was killed way back in chapter 12. Uh, in fact, in chapter 12, Ezekiel even uses some similar language, talking about uh, the Lord setting a trap and a snare for him. And we discussed how all of that actually happened. He died, as the Lord said, in Babylon. And the Lord says that when all of these things happen, the nation's army is vanquished, the, the survivors scattered, the leadership taken away, and all the rest. Then the Lord had indeed spoken to them. Now, how could the Lord be so sure that they would get that message? Well, it's because he told them about all this in advance. It's the fact that Ezekiel was saying these things three years before it all took place. And similarly, that Jeremiah was saying these things in advance to the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem. That's what brought both of them to understand these things came as a result of the Lord's judgment. They would have, the, the uh, inhabitants of Jerusalem would have seen everything take place just as they had been told by Jeremiah. And when the exiles, the last group of exiles, came up from Jerusalem and reached Babylon and joined all the other exiles that were already there with Ezekiel, and they began to share the news of what had happened, both groups would have had that aha moment and would have realized we heard about these things from our prophets. And at that point, they would have had to give heed to everything the prophet said. It would have been one of those moments where you realize he was right. Everything he said was true. And that recognition, that is to recognize that the Lord has spoken and, and acted in this way, that he has executed judgment against the people for their offenses, that changed their hearts, or at least it gave them a new perspective. And we know from history that the people of Israel at that point, at the point that they were in captivity and they recognized the Lord had acted against them, from that moment on, they committed to never again pursuing idolatry. And we've talked about this here in the past, that the memory of the Babylonian experience was so seared into the collective consciousness of the nation that it caused them to fear the Lord's response should they ever engage in idolatry again. And as a result, they never did. Now, I'm not saying that the entire nation turned to the Lord in faith. I mean, there's a big difference between following the law in obedience and following the Lord in faith. Those things are not equivalent. Uh, You can be in obedience to the law and have no faith, but you needed one to get to the other. And so what the Lord did for Israel was use the Babylonian captivity experience to return Israel's heart to obedience to the law. And then the Bible says the Lord used their obedience to the law as a tutor to bring them, some of them, to knowing Messiah. So the first priority was preserving the nation from idolatry so they would exist and and not fall apart, not, not dissolve into pagan idolatry. And in so doing, it served the Lord's long term purpose of being able to bring Messiah to the world through Israel. So that's the effect. That was the good effect of what the Lord is doing here. All right, but now shifting gears here a little bit. I've told you in the past that this book, Ezekiel, has two sides to it. The first part, the the first half or so of this book, 
is uh, the Lord bringing judgment to Israel because of their sins under the Old Covenant. And that's where we are now. But as we move into the second half of this book, we, we transition out of a discussion of judgment, by and large, to a discussion of redemption and glory. Now, we're not yet at the point of that changeover. We're still a little ways away from it. We still have some more of the judgment side of the book. But even now, the Lord begins to drop little hints at various places of this glory that is to come. And we get one of those little hints, those little previews, right here in chapter 17. It comes now in verses 22 through 24, where he promises the nation of Israel that there is more to this story than what has happened in their lifetime. In verse 22, the Lord says, Thus says the Lord God, I will also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will pluck from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the high mountain of Israel I will plant it, that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. And birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I will bring down the high tree, exalt the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will perform it. All right, well, I think for the most part, you and I can understand the symbology here and and get the point of this additional part of the parable, probably without a lot of explanation, because it draws from the earlier symbols, and we know what those are. So it just extends the message forward to a future glory. Take a look at some of the details and you'll see for yourself what he's talking about. And the symbology here is, is very clear. He's starting with the, the stately cedar here. You know, the very tops of those trees represented the leadership. But now you have the very highest tree and the very singular top of that tree being cut. And that, that's an allusion to the return of the Davidic line, that is a king who would come in the likeness of David ruling Israel as David did. And that's, of course, the promise of the Messiah. So this is a prophecy about Jesus. This is about Jesus coming back to rule and uh, taking his seat in, in place of David to rule over all the world, as we know that he will do in the coming kingdom that the Bible talks about. He will be the highest ruler that Israel has ever seen. And not only Israel... But that imagery of birds nesting in the branches of his kingdom, that's a common biblical picture of Gentile nations coming to nest in what God has done in Israel. And as we know, in this coming time of the kingdom, Israel will flourish. They will be the chief nation on the earth. They'll be protected by the Lord. They'll be under his care and guidance. And as well, all of Israel, we're told, in the kingdom will be obedient And believing they'll have hearts to obey. That's represented here by all the trees knowing him as Jesus rules over them and over the world. Finally, he says the effect of Messiah ruling will be to humble the proud and to exalt the humble. And that's a very different arrangement from the way uh, Israel works both today and in Ezekiel's day, really in in any day. I mean, that's not how life works, right? In, In real life, powerful and elite people in any nation hold the power. They uh, abuse the power for their own sake and at the expense of the people. We call that politics. That's what people do. And that's the exact opposite of what the Lord has desired from the people that he appoints to rule over his flock. And I want you to consider that the Lord's favorite metaphor for a leader over his people is that of a shepherd. That is, he wants those who lead his people to care for the flock more than they care for themselves, to be willing to to sacrifice their own interests uh, for those of who they care for. You know, Israel has not had a leader of that type for quite a while, certainly not since David. And when he rules over Israel and the world, he will judge with perfect righteousness. He will humble the proud. He will exalt the humble. So let's review quickly here what we just learned in this chapter. The people of God were dismissing Ezekiel's warnings because they said they could not be held liable for the sins of their fathers. And the Lord responded saying, well, that may be true, but you're going to be held accountable for your own sins because you and your generation have done the same things. And he used a parable to explain how their present king was just as evil as the previous kings, and he is going to be held accountable. In three years' time, he would see the consequences of his own sin, that the plan for the king to rebel would not succeed, the city would be taken and go into exile. But he ends by saying, because of this prophecy, the people of God in Israel would know 
that the Lord was the one bringing these judgments, and because of the severity of what happens, they will be willing to set aside their idolatry forever. And the combined effect of what God does draws Israel back into a faithful walk under the law, or at least it does away with their desire to pursue idolatry. And that zealousness for the law continues, for the most part, even to today among Orthodox and among observant Jews, there is still a desire to keep the law. There is not an interest in idolatry. But ultimately, the kingdom is the solution. Ultimately, when the Messiah comes and Israel embraces him in his second coming, there will be a kingdom set up, and that will be when all of these things, including idolatry, is finally put away. All right, now, in response to that answer, to that prophecy, the people of Israel double down on their excuses, and they begin repeating the complaint that they are being punished for their father's sins, and the Lord uh, is causing the sins of their fathers to fall on them. So they basically ignore the Lord's response here concerning their king, and they continue to insist that they're being unfairly punished. And so as we go a little bit into chapter 18 tonight, we're going to see how the Lord now picks up the conversation at that point, and he begins to specifically address their concerns by pointing out that they themselves share in these same offenses, and as a result, they are getting what they deserve. Now, we're not going to do all of chapter 18 tonight, but because uh, what we see in 17 and in 18 are so closely related, I do want to move into it a little bit. So let's go into 18 tonight, chapter 1. I'm sorry, chapter 18, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins will die. But if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness and does not eat at the mountain shrine or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman during her menstrual period, if a man does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtors his pledge, does not commit robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. If he does not lend money or on interest or take increase, if he keeps his hand from iniquity and executes true justice between man and man, if he walks in my statutes and my ordinances so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord God. All right, this chapter in Ezekiel, chapter 18, is probably one of the more studied in the book of Ezekiel because of what it says about God's system of justice. And the Lord opens here telling Ezekiel, I want you to rebuke the people with these words, beginning with challenging a proverb that had become popular in Israel. They were telling themselves that the father eats sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. Now, you, know, you can probably get the sense of what this means pretty easily. Eating sour grapes, uh, think of like eating a lemon even, it sets your teeth on edge, so to speak. It makes your mouth pucker up. You kind of clench your mouth, your teeth a little bit because of the sour effect. But the proverb says that as the father is eating the grapes, it's the children who are having the reaction. And that's a way of saying that the children of Israel were receiving the consequences of their father's poor choices. It's a, a not-so-subtle indictment of God's character because it's self-evidently unfair if that were going on. You know, it's... It's not hard for anyone to appreciate the unfairness of saying, my dad did something wrong, I had nothing to do with it, but now you're causing me to suffer and pay the penalty for his sin. That is unfair, that is wrong, and that's not how God works. And the proverb was reflecting both the nation's misunderstanding of God and how he works, but it also reflected their own self-deception. They, they thought God was treating them unfairly for the sins of those who came before them, which just means they were conveniently overlooking their own sin which is what provoked the Lord's wrath in their day, just as it did in the previous days. And so the Lord denies the truth of this proverb. He begins in verse 3. He says, as long as I live, and I love that phrase because uh, how long does God live? <laughs> Eternally, right? So in other words, this proverb is going to disappear forever from the use in Israel. And he says in verse 4, here's the truth. All souls belong to me, the soul of every father, the soul of every son or mine. What he means is they're all known. 
This is a powerful statement of God's sovereignty over the destiny of humanity. He is saying that every living person, every human being who has ever possessed a a soul, and I would argue that includes unborn children, all of them belong to the Lord. He knows them. He has determined the course of their path in life, the outcome of their soul. All of this is within God's knowledge. No one exists outside His view. Everyone is accountable individually to the Lord. No one escapes his judgment in a day to come. And the Lord says that the one who sins will die. Now, on the other hand, he flips it around. He says, the one who is righteous and practices justice and righteousness according to the terms of the law, well, that person will live. And he gives examples of what the righteous would do or not do under the context of the law. Uh, these are Now, we're talking here about the Jewish people living under the law in these evil days And the Lord says, if you have a man who's righteous among you, he's not going to eat the meat that's being sacrificed to idols around him in this evil culture. He's not going to pray to the idols. He's not going to commit adultery. He's not going to violate other law regarding lying with women. He's not going to oppress. He's not going to fail to repay his debts. He's not going to rob, you know, and so on and so forth. In summary, the righteous man who is living under the law will do his best to walk in those ordinances. In verse 9, the Lord says that walking in the statutes of the law in this way, meaning obeying the law as much as as a person could, was dealing faithfully with the Lord. That's a person with a heart who wants to display righteousness, who's trying their best to honor the Lord by their obedience. So in this context, living or dying refers to physical death, to the penalty for sin, Under the old covenant. We're not talking here about salvatic issues. We're talking about two examples. A person who has no interest in living under the law is intentionally disobedient. That's the person who sins versus one who is doing their best in faithfulness to God to obey the law they were given, that that Israel was given. And the distinction between them is who has a desire to be righteous. And if someone lives under the law, if if you have a Jewish person Uh, as you see in this time in in history, living under the law, who did not attempt to keep the law and who violated it in all the various ways that the Lord just explained, the penalty under the law was that that person would be put to death. That was the penalty. So what the Lord is saying is, I'm going to hold you accountable to your sins under the terms of the covenant that you are in. The Lord is simply saying that every soul under this covenant is mine and they all get treated equally. And if you violate the terms of this covenant, you should expect to die. The people of Israel were saying, oh no, you're treating us unfairly. You're holding us accountable under this covenant for the sins of our forefathers. And the Lord's defense is saying, I am not doing that. I'm holding you accountable for your own sin. And if you had had a heart of obedience, you would not be falling under the law's penalty of death. And then he goes forward and he says, there is also no link between this father-son relationship that you talked about. He goes on in verse 10 to say, Then he, now speaking about the the righteous man of his earlier example, he says, then he may have a violent son who sheds blood and who does any of these things to a brother, though he himself did not do any of these things. That is, he even eats at the mountain shrines and defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore a pledge, but lifts up his eyes to the idols and commits abomination. He lends money on interest and takes increase. Will he live? He will not live. He has committed all these abominations. He will surely be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. Now stop there for a moment. That's describing the son of a righteous man who, although his father was righteous and did the things he should do under the law, nevertheless, he happens to have a son who's violent, who does all the wrong things. And the Lord says, will that son live? No, he will not live. And his blood will be on his own head. Now in verse 14, he picks up the reverse example. That is a father who has done unrighteous things, but happens to have a son who is righteous. Verse 14, he says, Now behold, he has a son who has observed all his father's sins, which he committed, and observing does not do likewise. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife or oppress anyone or retain a pledge or commit robbery. But he gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. And he keeps his hand from the poor, does not take interest or increase, but executes my ordinances and walks in my statutes. 
He will not die for his father's iniquity. He will surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was not good among his people, behold, he will die for his iniquity. So that's the second example. The second example, you have a father who was doing all these many bad things, but the son uh, chose to do the right thing. So in those two examples, in verses 10 through 13, you have the, the righteous father with an unrighteous son. And as a result, the son is getting the penalty he deserves and the father is being exonerated. They're being treated independently according to, their, to, to what they do. And isn't this a, an encouragement to those godly parents out there who may have a concern over a wayward child? You know, the Lord in his word never hints at any link between the father and the child in this respect. In fact, the father's life can be impeccable. And yet a child might emerge from that relationship with, uh, you know, some kind of issue. And the father is not accountable for that. We still wish for better for our prodigal children, but we do not need to worry that we are somehow responsible for that outcome. I mean, we all have moments of regret and wonder about whether we messed up our kids. You know, we say things like, I, maybe I should have spanked more. Maybe I should have spanked less. And somebody else says, I, I know I should have sent my kid to private school. And someone else is saying, I know I shouldn't have sent my kid to private school. There is no formula. There is no one recipe that ensures we always get the right kid. I mean, there's families out there that do the same thing for all their kids, and they raise some kids that are you know, very godly and others that aren't. And it's just an evidence that you're not in control of a child's life at that level. And we don't need to concern ourselves or, or lose sleep as if we're accountable for what our children do. The Bible is clear that we're not. And then conversely, in, in verses 14 through 18, we have the opposite example of an unrighteous father who has a righteous son. And I, I think that's a bit of encouragement, actually. Uh, if you're worried that you weren't the right kind of parent for your child and you might not have been at some point, nonetheless, that doesn't mean that your child is, is guaranteed to be uh, a child in trouble. Uh, the Lord can, can bring something good out of that as well. And so the Lord says, in that case, the child will be exonerated, the father will not. Now, I want you to notice his summary in verses 19 through 20. That's the last piece of this chapter for tonight. He says, yet you say... Why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? When the son has practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So he's asking Israel, why do you keep saying I'm going to cause the son to bear his own father's iniquity because all the evidence argues for the contrary they know how the law uh, was stated or at least how it should be stated and practiced there was never any point in the law when the lord said hey when the father makes a mistake go kill the son it never happened so they had no reason to make that kind of conclusion and the only per the lord has said now plainly the only person who is accountable for sin is the individual that is a basic principle of Scripture, and the Lord has never practiced it any other way on an individual basis. No one is ever getting punished for someone else's sin. But many of you right now are thinking, I'm sure, about another passage you probably remember elsewhere in the law that seems to suggest that there might be a contradiction here. That is, you may remember something about the sins of the fathers resting on the children for the third and the fourth generation, something to that effect, right? Well... It, what you're remembering is, is in the law. It's a companion principle to what we're studying here in Ezekiel. It's a, a principle that is unique to Israel and their law. And unfortunately, in my experience, it's so often mistaught that we begin to think it's some guiding principle for how the Lord deals with all people, including us. And that's not the case. And I'm going to take you there now so that you can see it. Look, look at Deuteronomy 5, Deuteronomy 5, 7. The Lord writes, and you can see this in other places, not just in Deuteronomy, but this is one example. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and, and on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." Okay, so that's what probably many of you remember. And at first glance, it does sound like it's saying something different than what we just studied in Ezekiel. But we need to understand this in its context. In multiple places in the law, the Lord declares to Israel 
that the nation must have no other gods beside the Lord, and that if the nation violated that law against entering into idolatry, then the Lord would react in jealousy. Now, that's the first thing to note here. In the context of where this appears, where you see this phrase that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children, it's always in the context of idolatry. It's the Lord explaining what the consequences will be for the nation of Israel in idolatry. Now, at this stage here in the law, he never says exactly how he's going to respond. He just says he's going to respond in his wrath and that the results will last for several generations. But if you go later to Isaiah or Jeremiah or even where we are in Ezekiel, you come to learn that the penalty for idolatry is going to be exile, that the Lord is going to send Israel outside their land for a time. And the exile will last for about three to four generations, which is what the law was talking about. In other words, the Lord was not saying that he was going to hold on an individual basis a son or a grandson accountable for a father's sin. Rather, he was speaking about a national penalty for the national sin of idolatry. And this is unique to the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, under the covenant given through Moses, there were both laws that regulated the, the decisions of individual Jews. And if they violated those laws, there was a penalty, and often the penalty was death. That's what we've been talking about. But on top of that, there were also expectations for the nation as a whole. And if the nation as a whole went astray, particularly after idolatry, then there would be penalties for the entire nation. And the covenant itself stipulated that the nation would experience these judgments for failure. And you can see this in several places, but in Leviticus 26, for example, and we're, just, we're not going to cover that tonight, but if you were to go look at that chapter, in that chapter, the Lord spells out both blessings and consequences for failure to keep the covenant. And in that chapter, one of the things you hear is that if the nation engages in idolatry, they're going to be scattered among the nations. They're going to be driven out of their land. Their cities are going to become a waste. They're going to waste away in the lands of their enemies and so on. They're going to perish in their enemies' lands. So in other words, part of the national consequence for failure to keep the covenant was to be exiled. And that's what that law in Exodus, uh, I'm sorry, in Deuteronomy was talking about. The Lord was saying... If you as a nation engage in idolatry, the consequence of a jealous God will be so severe that it will ripple through multiple generations because there will be the second, third, fourth generations of your people born while in captivity. And as a result, they're not being punished in that sense. I mean, they're just being born somewhere. They don't know the difference. It's just where their home is now. But to the original generation, the Lord is saying, your sin under the covenant resulted in multiple generations of Israel being in exile. And that is a unique penalty for the nation because the covenant of law required it. So part of what we're learning is that under the law God gave Israel, there were national consequences for failure to keep the covenant and there were separate individual consequences for failure to keep the covenant. And those two lines of consequences worked in conjunction with one another. So the entire nation would experience national consequences, independent of how any given individual in the nation experienced life under the law. So you could have an experience, for example, like Ezekiel, a man who was righteous under the law and he, he kept the law as best he could and so he lived. That is to say, God did not subject him to the penalty of the law, which was death. Nevertheless, he was part of the nation and as the nation violated its covenant in engaging in idolatry, on a national basis, he would be caught up in the exile punishment. So here you have Ezekiel, a righteous man, in exile. So in what the people of Israel were saying to God, they're saying, you're punishing us now because of the sins of our fathers. What the Lord is saying in response is, no, that's not how I work. You will be dead or alive under the law based on how you live under the law. But your nation will go into exile because you violated at a national level the law against idolatry, and the penalty for that is exile. I know some have come to Deuteronomy 5, and they've said, oh, look, the Lord does bring generational curses, for example, which is a complete heresy. That's a complete misuse of the text, a misunderstanding of that text. That text is speaking specifically of Israel, 
specifically of a nation, not an individual, and specifically of what they will face under the law. Christians are not under the law. Christians are not Israel. We are not a nation. We are not going to be treated according to those rules. We're not held to those penalties. You're not going to go into exile in Babylon. Uh, Your children to the third and fourth generation are not going to be captives and grow up in a foreign land. None of that applies to the Christian. There is simply no direct comparison to be made, except the obvious one, which is we are all called to live obediently and we are all called to account individually. Now, as a Christian, our sins having been paid for by Christ, we will not see them again. We We will not pay that penalty, but we still have an accountability to God for how we live and that will be uh, accounted for at our judgment seat for the sake of determining our rewards. So we still have to concern ourselves with dealing faithfully with the Lord. But what he says to Israel is that you will be suffering for your own sake because of your own sin. And nationally, you're going into exile because you failed to uh, respect the covenant as well. All right, that's where we leave off tonight. We uh, come back into this chapter and finish up and go into chapter 19 next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. What a sober message it is. What, what a, a shock, perhaps, it is to our system to remember that you hold us accountable, that our sins are not invisible to you. And yet, at the same time, Father, what an encouragement it is to know that you knew all of those sins when you placed them on Christ, that even the ones we try to hide from you have been paid for. But because of that grace, Father, we ask that you would uh, encourage our hearts to live obediently, not to take it for granted, not to use it as license. Just help us to uh, respond in the love you showed us first in being obedient. And to understand from your example in Israel that you take sin seriously and that you hold to your covenant and that you do not violate your word. And it's that faithfulness that we depend on for our own salvation and our own future glory. But for the same reason, Father, let us not uh, take it for granted. We uh, thank you for this study. We ask, Father, for a continued opportunity to learn through you in in weeks to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.